Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. All right, all right, all right. Before we get started today, we just wanted to say welcome to the club. Footwork.club is now live, the official footwork website where you can find all the footwork content, including some new features. That's right. Along with our podcasts and guests, you can find exclusive written articles, including blogs about our own stories, free products that can help with chasing the dream, as well as our first official merch. All that and more to join the club. All right. So we welcome a special guest today, Roland Benedict. Welcome to Footwork. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, boys. Thanks for having me. So first, uh, first question always is our motto here, which is make your own path. It's essentially about, you know, making your own route, taking your own route, following your own dreams and not necessarily doing that nine to five or any of the normal routes if they don't fulfill you. So with all that being said, what does make your own path mean to you? Uh, I mean, if you asked me when I started on my path, I would have no idea. Uh, I think now it's, uh, I, I was actually, I've, I've been cataloging ideas to write my story into a book because it's so obtuse. Uh, and so pursuing things the wrong way, you know, is something I've always done. You know, I didn't have any idea how to get over it and pursue my career and just went for it. Um, and I think finding something that's always been told to me is we're taught to find a career, try and make money, try and have this identity and you know it's security it's that secure mm. feeling and i was always told by both my parents find something you truly love something you would dedicate your life to and money will find you money will come if you get that good at something you will be paid what you're worth uh, and it stuck to me and so creating your own path is fine you know and you see it in especially in modern day society find what you truly love and somebody will pay you what you're worth uh, mm. money will come Love that. Now, before we go into your story and to your company, can you give us and us and the listeners a bit of a LinkedIn version of who you are, where you're from? And uh, yeah, a bit of a, a, a Sparknotes version of who you are. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can. So my parents are from the entertainment industry. I was born in Santa Monica, California. My parents got divorced. My dad was from Montana. Uh, during the divorce, we went with my dad. We came here, lived in Montana, in Big Fork, Montana, on Flathead Lake excuse me, since I was four years old and I lived back and forth. So I was this small town. My high school had 300 kids in it. I knew every kid by their first name. And, and then in the summers, I'd go down to Los Angeles and I would, you know, family friend was Jeremy Renner before he was famous. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had this very interesting dichotomy of my own room and then visit my mom and I'd sleep on the floor of a two bedroom apartment. Uh, and so I had this very interesting uh, childhood, but grew up in Big Fork, Montana. And then you know, the rest is history, went overseas uh, and pursued the, the dream, as you guys know. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that brings us actually to now. Um, there's many different places we could start. We could start at the beginning, but I think we'll start now and head backwards. So okay. this amazing company, Legend Soccer, something that you founded with your teammate, Sean. Um, a few dream chasers, kind of funny, just, you know, a few dream chasers like us too, just trying to change the soccer market. So Legend Soccer, what is it? What is its mission? And how did you settle on the name too? 
You know, that's, I have to give the credit where the credit's due. Sean's, my partner, Sean Person, is a former collegiate player, uh, grew up in Whitefish, Montana. We met in that 2012 year, and he's a brilliant dude. I mean, the stuff that when we first met, we just start talking, start talking football, mostly in philosophy of either coaching or how to develop players and very off the beaten path. And he, he had had this idea. I mean, he had had this idea since he was in college of a, a soccer company that was sustainable, pushed the envelope um, and released products that had, that cared products that were high performance and quality, but that felt like the company that built them actually cared about the people that wore them. Uh, and I wear all major brands products, but it's, you know, you know, it's mass produced, you know, everyone's got them uh, and something that really, really mattered. And so he had drawn actually our logo he drew on an airplane on a napkin. So he's an incredibly talented artist and he drew it by hand. Like that's just a bespoke logo that he drew. Um, and legend, legend started the idea, how we settled on it. It was something he had always thought of, but you, both of you, Dylan, Sean, you guys have your own legend. You have developed a legend, right? It's going to be your story that you leave to your kids, to your family, brothers, sisters, parents, You've created your own legend. Everyone has that. Everyone starts. You're the, you're the main character of your own legend and your own story. And we wanted people to understand that. And through our products, they last. They're built to last. Our shin guards, when you get them, they're customized. They last. You can hand them down to your kids. You can hand them off to a friend or a family member and let them play. So that's where it came from. But we make high-performance, sustainable products and innovate on uh, the industry that has, we feel, stagnated a little bit and gotten into a cycle of bright colors and cheaper materials and higher cost. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. I think we all know when we slip on those plastic shin guards, usually as small as we can get them just so that they, they fit in there nice and tight. So what is it about the, the legend um, shin guard that makes it stand out, you know, besides the sustainability part, but in terms of fit, in terms of design, um, what are some things that really stand out? Well, I mean, it's made out of bamboo, so it's sustainable, but it's, you know, it looks, it looks abnormal to somebody that's never seen them. I mean, they're gorgeous. We've had people buy them and put them on a shelf. We've sold them as uh, awards for tournament, just purely, hey, here's, you know, here's a first place trophy. Um, but the, the design, it's, you know, as we all know, we hate shin guards. I've always hated shin guards. Shin guards suck. I mean, they're just a pain in the ass. Yep. And so it's like, couldn't we make something we'd want to wear that we've never, we put in and you, at the end of the game, you forgot you had them on. Um, so minimal contact points, uh, not a ton of area for sweat to build up and then to get uncomfortable. And then they don't move. They lock in place. And that comes from our teardrop design. Uh, then something that they don't smell. Like shin guards suck. They smell, they're gross. You're not proud of them. Uh, and so could you make something that you wanted to wear, wanted people to see, but didn't know you were wearing and you could just go out and play. And it stayed out of the areas of uh, your foot and your body that were the most important where you could go have success, score a goal, strike, you know, a big diagonal. If you're an outside back, uh, control the ball better out of the air. And all of those things are, are things that we focused on. And that's what's happened. I mean, once you make the switch, it's kind of, why didn't I wear these earlier or longer? And where, where does this process begin? So you, you say you, you want to make a shin guard, a sandal shin guard out of bamboo. Where, where do you start in terms of production and prototypes and testing? I would imagine that is quite a, quite a long process. Yeah. <clears throat> um, 
So when we first started, because we're in Montana, we had trees around us. It was like, can we make them out of wood? And we have, there's dating back, and we did the research of dating back into history. People wore bark. They wore actual raw materials as shin guards to protect themselves. And so could you, could you make them out of a wood? Imagine getting like mahogany shin guards. Like how dope would that have been? Uh, not sustainable, uh, very expensive, but yeah. man, that would have been crazy. Yeah. And so we started going down that road. Could you make a shin guard out of wood? And it became uh, apparent it was very hard. It was very hard to get the, the wood to bend and still hold strength and not be you know massive and thick mm-hmm. and give you the protection you needed. So eventually we stumbled to bamboo and we came across bamboo. And so the first time we tried to make a pair and I wore them for about a year is we bought bamboo stocks, so round stocks about three inches in diameter and cut them out with a skill saw and took them to a belt sander and hand sanded them into different shapes. Uh, they were probably like this big, the ones that I wore and I actually snapped them because I sanded them too small. And if th- we were trying to make them out of one piece and Eventually, from that process of making them by hand in a shop, we had a cabinet maker make the first ones that were the closest, mm. kind of the prototype that we have today. Um, and then we, you know, sourced a manufacturer to see if they could do it. And uh, we found a company in Michigan, actually, that can produce them for us. And so it's not, it's a simple process, but it's a very complex process to get it as thin and in that bend and retain that shape and still, you know, make sure you don't snap your leg in half if you get into a tackle. Yeah, of course. Now for entrepreneurs and people who are creating products, how important would you say this notion of failing quickly is not failing, but you know, the product isn't what it needs to be yet. So what, how important is that process to get it out there, test it, get it out there, test it again until you, you know, come onto the right product. Um, I, the, the biggest thing I would say is, is stay, stay focused. If you're a creator, it's easy to see another avenue that you could go. Uh, If you come up with an idea for a product, stay focused and commit to it. Commit Mm -hmm. to developing something that is a workable prototype, something that you could wear, you'd be proud to wear or is safe to wear. And then the next thing is test the market. So when we had that first cabinet maker producing for us, we got a booth at the at the time was the national soccer coaches convention. And now it's the United soccer coaches convention. And we had a booth and we went and said, let's see if what people think. Uh, we, I think we won best new product, best new company of the whole convention uh, and pioneered and made a lot of great connections. And, and so for us, it was proof. Like, okay. We're still not there. We still know that we need to refine it and we're still refining it to this day. We're, trying to release a new model actually currently with a little bit new technology in it, but we got to the point. Okay. The market's there. People like it. There is an opportunity here. And now let's make it, let's take it to the next level. And, and making a sustainable product like this, that is a bit different than everything else is not built with plastic um, comes with a higher price. Now, how do you encourage customers and players to make the switch and why is it so important to do so? It's the, it's the one battle. I mean, the greatest thing about what we're doing is nobody markets shin guards mm-hmm. and nobody likes to wear shin guards. So if you can capture that education piece and you can create that cognitive switch in the industry, you will be the leader of that portion of the industry. The negative mm-hmm. is you have to convince people that shin guards are cool 
and you have to educate them on why they should invest in a sustainable product and go from paying $9 for Nike J guards to $60 for our base standard model. Uh, that's the biggest education piece. And that requires money. It requires marketing budget that requires doing podcasts, getting pros to wear them. Uh, and it's a grind, especially, I mean, it's like, uh, I'm a skier, I'm a big skier. And so there was a time growing up, if you wore a helmet on the slopes, you were laughed at and made fun of. And now if you don't wear a helmet, you get laughed at and made fun of. And that's kind of the mentality switch that we're, we're driving and we're trying to pioneer. Uh, but the biggest way I, ex I explain it, Sean, is this. When's the, when's the last time you bought a pair of cleats? Uh, Actually, when, when's yeah. the last time you bought a pair of cleats? A few months ago. Okay, how much did you, did you pay? Not to be uh, snoopy, but yeah, how much you pay? 200. <laughs> 200. Okay, when's the time? What what cleats did you buy before that? And when? The brand or what do you mean? No, just like like how much and when, when did you buy them? So exact, exact same pair and probably a few months before that. So you've spent $400 in the last <laughs> six months. Perfect yeah. case yeah. study. And, yeah. and, that's, and that's most of the time parents, as you walk them through that conversation, yeah. And I, I go farther. Like I just, I lay it on them and I, we go like five years back and you can see them start to go. Yeah. Yeah. We've spent about $1,500 on soccer cleats that they destroy yet. We're only willing to pay $20 for the one piece of equipment that might make my child, daughter, son, my own career last longer and increase the longevity of it. Why wouldn't I spend $60? Yeah. And then on top of that, you're getting rid of plastic. Yep. You are able to make sure that it's not going to smell. If you have rashes and you have skin irritation from your shin guards, it prevents that. And then you can customize it. And then on top of that, because they're so clean, if you want to, those shin guards can go to the younger daughter, younger sibling, younger brother. Uh, why wouldn't you spend 60 bucks? It's a no brainer. If you're going to play for 20 years, it's nothing. So that's the education piece. Um, and it's a long grind, but that's the big issue. I love that uh, simple statement that you said, though, is how do you make shin guards cool? I think yeah. that is that's such a great think piece. I mean, some of the things you guys are doing and, and one of the reasons I originally looked out to you guys, because I said to myself, holy shit, this is these shin guards are, are cool as hell. Like, can you touch a little bit on the customization process and the partnerships that you've been finding um, just to build and promote um, the products? Uh, yeah, the customization process is something we do in-house. Um, we have a great design team and actually Sean was the pioneer of that because he's so talented. And so we, we do all of the custom artwork. So you can send us a logo, like you've got the wave logo in the back. We can take that and put that on a shin guard. We can take the St. Pauli logo and put it on a shin guard. Um, and we use lasers and make sure that the, you know, the depth is right. And, um, but it's where the it's where the real you know shin guards people wear. But I think understanding the individuality, especially at the top level of the game, where you can go in and you know a lot of players they have a you know a new a new baby boy, a new baby girl, and they can put a photo of them being born on the shin guard and really be um, proud. You know that hey, I'm carrying my kids with me or my family with me uh, is huge. And I think that's been a big connection for a lot of a lot of the partnerships that we've had success with, not only with players, but also, also clubs. You can put the club crest and uh, the year the club's founded uh, on a, on a shin guard and, and really hold some value with the players and the fan base as well. 
Um, I mean, when you start talking about the product, there's just so many different checkpoints of like, yeah, you can customize it and then it's gorgeous and then, oh, it's sustainable and it's high performance and it's small. And you have talked about these shin guards for so long. Eventually you go, why wouldn't you wear them? Why would you wear a piece of plastic that's got yeah. a sticker on the top of it? Yeah. I'm looking at mine right now. <laughs> have those Nike J guards then out of yeah, years. Yeah, I know. That's what I Guilty. wore. Guilty. That's what I yeah. wore. Yeah. Now, um, for, for those listeners out there that are, are looking to start a business or are starting a business, what are some advice you have for them? Um, start At first, obviously, it's it's never easy. There's a lot of work and you think there's 10 things that need to be done, but it turns into 100, but it turns into 1,000. Um, what are some things you wish you knew when you first started out? Um, treat it, for, stay focused on the, on the product, on the industry, on your service, whatever you're providing, whatever you're creating, stay focused on that. Uh, and if you're going into entrepreneurship and you're starting a business, if you're going in because you want to create a fast-tracked way to either sell it and make a profit or you're seeing dollar signs at the end of it, you're in it for the wrong reason. And it's going to be a struggle and it probably won't work out because it's a long grind. It's not a fast, quick, easy. It's like trying to play pro. It's not a fast, mm -hmm. quick, easy. People don't believe you, especially if you're innovating. They don't believe that it's the right idea. Um, they don't give you the money you need. They don't give you the time of day that you want. And you're constantly being told no. And so stay focused do it for the right reasons because you want to make positive change. You want to pioneer, you're a creator and you love it. Um, and get ready to commit a long time. I mean, five to 10, at least five to 10 years before you realize either maybe it wasn't as good of an idea as I thought, which is okay. Right? We, we along the road had other products that we didn't really, didn't really get a foothold or people weren't as excited about as we were. Um, but yeah, focused and do it for the right reasons. Don't look to make a quick buck um, and be prepared for growth. Me, when we first started the idea, I was 22. If you knew me at 22, I wasn't ready to run a business, but I didn't treat it like an actual business. So understanding that in the beginning, I need to, if, when I focus and work on the business, I'm at the office. I've clocked in, keep track of your hours. This is how many hours I spent. This is... And treat it like a job, not just a side hustle. This is part of, I have three jobs. I work here, I work here, and I own my own company. Really, what do you do? Oh, I started a soccer company. You have to treat it. You have to change your mindset that you're a business owner. It's not just a thing that you're trying to do. Uh, and if you do those three things, you'll be successful. Whether that is, you know, you make millions of dollars and you have financial freedom and you change the industry that you're in, or you grow a lot and you learn and it pushes you and spins you into, you know, the true meaning of your journey in mm. life, whatever, whatever that takes you. I see so many parallels between soccer journeys that I'm sure we'll get into with yours and Sean and I, this notion that keeps coming into my head when you said this, especially with all the no's to be prepared for is this mm -hmm. intrinsic motivation and confidence that you have an idea that's going to work out. Now, when you hear all those no's, is it difficult to kind of keep that belief in the product and how important is it to have a strong support, strong workers and coworkers and, and, and co-founders around you? Well, there's different, I guess there's different degrees of no. So every time somebody views our product, they think it's, can I swear on here? 
Yeah. I'll go ahead. Yeah. They think it's they think it's fucking badass. Like yeah. every time they said, man, this is amazing. This is what I would want to wear when I played this. They love it. So we've had yes a lot. There's been a lot of support of the product, but doing rounds of funding, meeting with certain investors, it's, ah, it's not the right fit. You're not big enough yet. You don't have enough revenue. Uh, it's not an industry I specialize in. But every time, so that's a no. Right. Because we could have easily had, you know, we've had Adidas reps come up. We've had soccer.com say, nah, you guys aren't Noxie approved. So we don't want to have you on our, you don't have three sides. You don't have this. You don't have, but at the same time, everyone's saying, yes, the product's great. So I think understanding what the no is, like I didn't sign to Manchester City. I played there for six months. So was it actually bad? No, it was fantastic. It's a great be. experience. Couldn't be. Right. <laughs> Right. But, but in the moment, what's my folk, my sole focus is I want to sign a pro deal and I didn't. So I'm a failure. We went into an investment meeting and we didn't get the investment. We failed. Did we, they loved our product. They loved stay in contact with us. Keep us up to date on your growth, update us on your progress. So being prepared for the nose, but understanding, and this is a gift I've had for a long time. Uh, and I think it comes from my parents is understanding what a no really means. And it's a growth of that understanding. When I was 20, 19, 18, trying to play pro, it was a little rougher. Mm. But now understanding that, that like everything that I went through prepared me for the moment I am in right now. And as long as you're in tune with those decisions, you won't have regret. You'll be interested in what would have happened if things went differently, but you won't regret where you're at right now. Um, so understanding those different degrees of no and wrapping them in and saying, all right, part of the process. Was it a true negative or is it a positive that, you know, I just, I'm not in the right moment. I'm not in the right mindset. I'm not in the right spot, but I've got all the positives. So let's keep going. Love that. I mean, you can't tease, you can't tease the listeners with that Man City uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> quote there. So let's get, let's get into your playing, playing career because it may be one of the most unique playing careers I've ever heard of. Um, so yeah, start us off. You you finish high school and uh, yeah, let's let's start from from then on. Yeah, well, so I was always a basketball player growing up. Basketball is my favorite sport. Uh, I would shovel snow off in the morning at six a.m. in Big Fork, Montana, to shoot on my basketball hoop before going to school with mittens on. And it was that was about all I did. Traveled everywhere with the basketball. Uh, if you knew me growing up, you'd be like, "There's if I played a sport at a professional level, it would have been basketball." Um, I've pl I played one-on-one -on -one with Kobe Bryant at Laker camp. I've been on the same court as OJ Mayo and uh, DeMar DeRozan and Taj Gibson and um, Lil Romeo, Romeo Miller. Oh, Romeo, son. yes, of course. I, I was that. Wow. I was at the same, the same USC recruiting camp when they, when he went to USC. Um, it was the sport and I was really, really good. I, I actually have said, if I had the same mental confidence on a soccer field as I did on a basketball court, I'd probably still be playing professionally at a probably pretty high level, but I didn't have the same belief in my technical ability, but soccer and, and basketball became this equal driving force. And I always wanted to be a pro. I always wanted to be a professional basketball player. And then it was, I want to be paid to be a professional athlete, whether in basketball or soccer. Um, and as I graduated from high school, I hated school. I got terrible grades. Uh, I, I hated school. I hated the environment of learning. Uh, every teacher loved me. Every kid loved me. I had great rapport with the principal. And it, I mean, I was just, but I hated school. I hated that environment of learning. And so I told my dad and him being from the entertainment industry and 
Jason, you know, being an actor and same with my mom. So dad, I, I know that if I leave now and I'm probably still too old right now, if I try and play soccer in Europe, I might have a chance to play professionally at 18 because your career starts younger than it does trying to play in the NBA. Um, and he let me do it. Uh, and I think I had the realization that like I, I was five eleven, six feet tall graduating. I'm now six feet tall. So just under six one. I could dunk. I had like a 39 inch vert and ran four four forty. Like I was an athlete. But my body type, like I was lean. I was built to run. I wasn't really designed to be an NBA point guard in just my total anatomy. Like it's just not the way, you know, I could go to the gym and put on weight and get after it. But in terms of the actuality, like, I felt like, man, I, I'm probably more built to be a soccer player. And so that's where it went. And he said, all right, let's do it. And we moved to London and got a flat uh, in Putney, just across the uh, Putney Bridge. I could see the Fulham Stadium uh, at the time from our condo and started knocking on doors and eventually got a tryout at, uh, at Gillingham. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life, more so than going to Manchester City, just because the last game I played was in Libby, Montana, uh, for Big Fork High School. Crazy come up. I mean, so for those who don't know, at the time, Gillingham was in, was that League One or League Two? They, they were in League One. They were in League the One. So to Gillingham was from, in League One. To go from high school soccer in Montana, which, I mean, I don't, I don't know the level there, but I am, I am just guessing, um, is another plan is another plan compared. Oh, yeah. My best friend was our starting goalkeeper and I recruited him his junior year because he had too many concussions in football to come play goalkeeper for us and he had a lot of natural ability but I mean for example my coach would ask me before training hey what do you think of the session and I'd go that's not good they won't like this let's do that and then by the way I'm just going to go train Levi in goal uh, because he needs some more work okay sounds great we had three kids that never that never start that had never played soccer in our starting 11. And I was recruited constantly in that time to leave. And this is goes back to the decision-making. I was recruited by Whitefish where I coach now, who my, one of my good buddies who's actually presided over my wedding with my wife was the head coach. And they recruited me to come up there. Some of the parents did, and they won back-to-back undefeated state championships. I probably would have scored a thousand goals in that team. And I didn't leave. And the reason I didn't leave is because I couldn't abandon my friend. I couldn't abandon my team, play against them every week. Like, that's not who I was. That's not, that's not, like, I would be a one club guy. Like, whoever gave me my first pro contract at a top division, I'd be there for the rest of my career. Couldn't abandon them. And what it gave me, though, is I understood how to make my teammates better, which is a very rare skill, not only from Montana, but just in general, I could make my outside back who had never played look like a million bucks because I put him in situations he would succeed. And because of that, it made me a better leader, a better coach, a better communicator and prepared me for everything else I've done in my life. So yeah, the standards, absolute shit. Um, And, you know, at the time at Gillingham, um, I believe Simon Francis, who center back for Bournemouth was there. Um, Tomas Radzinski was there. Um, there are some guys that could move it. They could really move it. And, uh, yeah, it was terrifying. I think you said on another, on your podcast, actually, that was it Bamford Patrick Bamford was there as well. 
I think technically I he, wa- he was at South End. Mm-hmm, so okay. I left Gillingham and went to South End. I'm like, because the first day I showed up, got a tryout, went to trial. And at the end, the coach came up at Gillingham and went, there's five of us there. And he went, um, I won't see you tomorrow. Uh, like pretty much don't come back. Don't come back. Uh, Roland, I'll see you tomorrow. Oh, okay. What does that mean? Do I just show up? Where do I go? I had no idea. I mean, I showed up to training in the back of the uh, kit guy's van. Classic. I was sitting on all the equipment because that's just how it worked. And so uh, I trained at Gillingham for a couple weeks. They played me in a reserve game, um, uh, played fairly well. And then I um, played in a second reserve game. And a guy that they had been trying to recruit and sign was able to come and try out. And so I got dropped from the starting 11 in that reserve match. And then I got the call from South End to go try out. They never told me like, hey, you should come back next week at Gillingham. So I left and went to South End, who at the time was in League Two. But Gillingham and South End are like right across the bay from each other. So they're like direct rivals. It'd be like going from Liverpool to Manchester United like or Everton, even better example. Liverpool to Everton, like literally just. And so I went to South End and then I got a call uh, or my dad at the time got a call saying, uh, where's why is rolling out at training at Gillingham? like well you never told him to come back and you dropped him from the roster in the last reserve game and so they wanted me to come back anyway so I was at South End and uh yeah started playing there played in the reserves um played with Junior Stanislas who at the time was like on a different planet skill-wise than anybody I'd ever experienced like and we played the same position I was two-footed or still am but my whole thing is I can take free kicks, corner kicks with either foot with the same standard. And he, so he played, he played wide in a four, three, three, we played the same role and everything he did was at such an efficient level. I, I couldn't, I just couldn't comprehend it. Couldn't comprehend how you could be that good. So, I mean, besides him and, and this standard that he was setting, what were some of the things that you saw at those first two clubs that was just such a shock from your time in Montana and what did you have to learn really quickly? Uh, there's always two things. And I still use it today in training with players. The two things that I learned, and this will blow your mind. There's two things. One is that you can actually defend an opponent using your hands and arms. <laughs> so growing up, if I reached out and grabbed someone with my arm, it was a foul. This, in the, this was in the Montana state rules or this was, this was, in, this was in Montana. This is just how we were refereed. Okay, so I went wow, to yeah. a training session at Gillingham. No, this was at South end. And I went into a 50, 50, like face to face, 50, 50 tackle. And I'm going in, like, I'm going to run in and I like, pull the ball away. Cause I'm quick. And I got, quick, I have quick feet and run away. And the kid doesn't even, I doesn't even look at the ball looks directly at me, two hands in my chest, flattens me on my ass takes the ball away and plays whistle blows training session whistle blows the coaches you know saying every word in the book just swearing at someone I'm kind of still what the hell just happened and the coach is over top of me screaming at me calling me you get off and just kick me out well didn't kick me out of training that's a different story but just yelled at me braided me for not going in hard enough and I went whoa okay you can do that that's a thing I can play that way Uh, And then the other one is I was never told or coached when I received the ball, um, which is now a main major part of my philosophy is scanning the field. 
I never scanned the field as a player until I went over there. So I relied, I was told your teammates should tell you to turn or not. You're not supposed to look, which is, I, I don't know how I survived. I, I don't know how my leg did wow. get broken the first day I got there. So those two things, I couldn't defend with my arms and I never looked over my shoulder before I received the ball and turned. Those or are scanned the field in general. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. Too massive. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah. how did you feel at these sessions? Because these are these are very high levels. I mean, I don't know if you were training with the first team or second team or reserves or the U19s, whatever it was, but either way, I mean, these these players are being developed from a really young age. And you were mm -hmm. in Montana, obviously, with not the 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 highest standard of coaching. Um, how was that adjustment? Um to be honest, I was an incredibly good athlete and I was really smart. So I anticipated the game well, uh, smarter about the game. And I think this is why I made the right decision. And the, I should be, a, I should have been playing soccer for a long time was that I learned very fast. Like it was something where I was so ready for more knowledge that in one session, I probably learned six months of knowledge because I was picking up things by just watching the watching the other players play forget what the coach was telling me and I don't even really remember a lot of the coaching I got as much of just watching other player how players how they moved how they interacted with the ball the way they prepped their body in terms of controlling the ball all of those things I learned on the fly uh, but the biggest thing I remember we ran sprints uh Man City too but at, at South End and Gillingham and I never lost and so I kind of went because I was always the fastest kid on the field. And then I ran sprints and went, oh, I still am really fat. Okay. And it gave me the one little bit of confidence. And then um, I became, I mean, my whole soccer skill set from 18 to 22 uh, was my whole development as a player. Uh, I, I remember I couldn't do, I couldn't juggle and do it around the world. And I learned it in 30 minutes when I got over, over I had never even seen anyone do it. And I watched someone do it tried it and did it instantaneously so i was just ready for coaching um and so i developed very 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 quickly which i think is why i continued to progress because coaches were like oh my gosh from day one to day two he's a different player right yeah 100 right. now how about the culture in and around it i mean it could be in terms of football too but in inside and outside of these training sessions what was that like? Because I'm sure that was as big as an adaptation as on the field. The standards of quality um, and holding yourself accountable was, was the biggest difference. My favorite moments of the whole experience was actually being on the field. I, mean, I, I, hate, I actually hated the environment off the field with the players. It just wasn't what I enjoyed. I liked conversation and talking. and you know, I was still a kid, so still an idiot, but I said, I wanted to talk and, and these guys were just like, you know, who, how many girls have they slept with last week? And you know, what, what are they going to go buy at the store? Like, it was just dumb. Like, I just didn't care. Uh, but on the field, the standard of play, like not giving the ball away. Like I had never been told, like, you can't give the ball away. Just, you cannot give the ball away. Stop giving the ball away. Uh, when you cross the ball, you know, I'm whipping balls in with my left foot, which is technically my um, non-dominant foot. And I can't pass it. I can't clear the first defender now the ball i'm hitting a one touch cross from a driven ball on a 40 yard diagonal and it's on the floor and i've got to hit it on the run on one touch with my left peg and i'm ripping balls in and i had one clear the first defender i got kicked out of 
training. The guy just sent me home. Was like, this was the story of you getting kicked out of training. Yeah. So this wasn't, oh, so yeah. in my head, I thought behavior, but it was because you couldn't get the ball over the first defender. I couldn't get the ball over the first defender. He wow. said, just get out of here. Don't even be on the training field if you're not going to do that. I was like 10 minutes in. It's actually one of my favorite. His name is Ricky Duncan. I think he's still at South End United. Uh, one of my favorite people ever. Uh, swore like a sailor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he um, kicked me out of training. And it's when I realized that, and it's what I have today is don't give the ball away. Like, don't just be careless with the ball. It's just inexcusable. One, to not want it. And two, to not keep it. Yeah. Somebody can take it from you and you will give it away because you'll have to take risks and chances and make mistakes, but it'll be with intent and with purpose. A careless giveaway, not clearing the first offender on a cross, just go home. Yeah. And he's, and he was right. He was right. <laughs> like, yeah, what are you doing? Get out of here. That's the level though. That's the standard. That's what's yeah, crazy. That's the standard. Yeah. Random and question. Continued. That continued all the way, all the way through my whole career. Yeah. I would bet a random question here that has nothing to do with this, but I spent some time with English players in Australia and I just wanted to know how many times you were called a Yank. Countless. Or... Um, not a lot. Okay. Well, I remember maybe they did. And I just ignored it. Like Ted okay. Lasso. Like I thought it was endearing. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> uh, um, I mean a different, not Yank wank, but yeah, uh, I think I wasn't really, not to my face. I could definitely get the energy of the fact that um, they didn't really rate me as a player. Yeah, he's American. He sucks. Uh, but I've always been good at making people like me, whether that's sometimes it's a positive and sometimes it's a negative. Um, but yeah, I always fit in well with teams and players and had great relationships in that aspect. Gotcha. I guess I needed to, I needed some work in this area, but <laughs> hey, um, we can, we can sit down. I'll give you some tricks. I love that. Yeah. I'm learning a lot right now on the fly. So, um, I mean, from that time, how long were you at South end and what happened there? And then well, I believe next was the man city time. So take us through that whole realm. So I left in 2008. So I graduated high school and I came back from South end in 2009, end of, Right before 2010, um, I came home and I could, I mean, like I was living in the digs at the time with the under 19s, under 20, some of the under 23s. And like, they were, they were like taking shits on each other's doors in the digs. And like, it was just a madhouse. Like it was just miserable. What is, what is like, the digs? Is it just like a, a complex for so, a dorm? Yeah. So the, di yeah. Dorm. So they bought a hotel, the club owned a hotel mm -hmm. and they host it. And you said you could live there. And, you know, it's like three guys to a room. It was like college. Mm -hmm. This is probably exactly what the college experience would be like freshman year, sophomore year. So, and I told my dad, I was like, I love playing soccer. I love, but I don't want to be like, if this is what it's going to take and this is the environment I have to live in, like I, I don't enjoy it. You know, when it goes back to find something you truly enjoy and are passionate about and pursue it. Like I loved playing, but I didn't want to be around in that environment. Now, looking back, there's a lot of things I would change maybe to continue that progression, but then you still, I didn't have that utter belief in my ability, even though I was good enough. So I said, dad, I want to come home. I want to try and play in the United States. I understand the philosophy. I've had some experience. I've played um, and I had, so I had work permit issues because I had nobody in my family that could get me an exemption to get a work permit. Yeah. And so I had to be like a, and I was too old to sign like a schoolboy contract, mm -hmm. which they could have done. And I wasn't good enough where they say, well, he's going to come in and walk into our first team. Maybe if he played here for two years, he could do that. 
So I was in this weird like gray area. And this is kind of where I lived my whole career. I was too old, but I wasn't to be a schoolboy, but I wasn't good enough to be signed to a first team contract uh, to get around my um, nationality and not being able to get a work permit fairly easily. So I said, I can come back and and I said, okay, no problem. And my dad tells me now, he's like, he thought we were going to go over for like two months. I was going to have a trial, find out I'm not good enough and come back home and go to college is what he really thought. And so I came back and this is when I started coaching. I played for a semi-pro team called FC Hosenthal in uh, LA and started coaching as a 19-year-old kid for a junior varsity team. 19, you were, Hall. you were coaching yeah. junior varsity. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, as a 19-year-old kid. Uh, and that's kind of where the, I was like, man, I'm, I'm, they'd never, that GV team had never won a game. And I came in and told him, look, you can either have fun. We'll shoot the shit. We'll just, we'll kick it. And it'll be, you'll have a blast or we can put in work and we'll, we'll have a blast and never win a game. Or we can put in work. It'll be hard. It'll also be really fun. And we'll win some games. What do you want to do? So we want to win some games. So great. We're going to go to work. And we did. Uh, and we won our, we won our division. We were like seven and six and won our division and they went into the playoffs and we lost our first game. And that was it. Did you take but, a lot um, of things from, from England back into your coaching? Did you take a lot of the things that you learned in that short time? Yeah. I mean, now being the coach I am now, I probably was like a scatterbrained idiot in the sessions that I ran, Yeah. but uh, yeah, no, I took it all back. The standards, I mean, pretty much just the standards, like, Hey, one, don't give the ball away. And two, uh, work, work, hold yourself to a standard, hold yourself accountable for wanting the ball. You're you, okay. You're good. Prove to me you're good. Don't give it away. Keep it, be a threat on the ball. All these things, all that mentality. It was pretty, I probably just pretty much brought a different mentality to a group of guys that had some ability, put players in positions where they could be successful. Didn't play them out of position. Didn't ask them to do things they couldn't do. Um, and built a team that could be successful and they had some, they had some good success and we won some games. So you but never like, we kicked... went on bus. We went on bus trips. I was 19 with like 16 year old kids. Yeah, the dynamic like, of this for is two crazy. hours. Yeah, it's mad. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, was there any trouble of them seeing you as the authority figure? And did you ever kick anyone out of training for not clearing the first man? I never kicked anyone out of training. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty authoritative. I mean, uh -huh. like, talking now, you're probably like, "Oh, Roland's a nice guy." Like, but I, every player that I coach is usually intimidated of me. Uh, until they really understand and then they're like no he's just the standard like I don't I don't if you're on my team and you don't want the ball just sit on the bench or don't show up like hold yourself accountable and that's because I believe in you mm -hmm. it's not because you're not good like I will make I have players that have never played and that goes back to being in big for you will come into my team and I will make you better if you want to be better if you put in the work you show up to learn and I've got girls because I coach the women's side and that's what I prefer. When you show up, I tell you, I say, look, for the first week, I will not coach you. And I know you don't know how to play soccer. You don't know how to kick a ball. You have no skill set. Now, this girl's 14 years old. She's never kicked a ball before. I said, guess what? Everyone on the planet from 10 years old to 40 kicks a soccer ball the same way. Just watch and learn. You'll figure it out your body will understand how to accomplish the tasks we're asking of you. I'm watching, I'm not abandoning you, but I'm not just going to come in and tell you how to do it. I'm going to let you figure it out. And it's this wide eyed thing. And then eventually they figure it out and they turn into as good a player as they can. And, you know, four years of high school and they move on. But um, yeah, that, uh, 
I forget where that conversation started. Um, or that I guess we started. can come back into yeah, your time as the coach, spending time playing semi-professional and then jumping yeah. back into to Europe. Yeah, we, yeah, we, um, I was coaching and I was playing and training and playing and pickup games. And I had buddies over there actually. So the guy, it was 2010. We're watching the world cup. I'm in LA and a buddy of mine, Matthew Chin was the floor manager of events at the playboy mansion and Hugh Hefner's personal server. And he's the one guy he played in Southern California. He played in a very good environment. He was a good player. Like he won MVP of a tournament that his SoCal team won or participated in, in France. They played against Portugal, France, Italy, and he won MVP of a tournament. He's like Javi. Like he moved exactly like Javi, like midfielder, smart, super technical. And he's, he told me, he's like, look, if you grew up in Southern California, you would have been drafted as a 16 year old going into the MLS. Like you would, it would have been over. You just grew up in a shitty environment. And so he gave me this belief again, like, Oh, I am good. So it was one of those, I've been told, no, 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 I don't like the game. And it was this yes of like, no, you can play. You just need, you need the right environment. And so it's 2010. We're watching the world cup. And my dad gives me a call. It's like 5. AM. Cause I forget what the world cup was that your South Africa, maybe South it's 5. AM. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually watching um, Argentina at the time and I forget who they're playing. And my dad calls me pretty much tells me, Hey, South end uh, or Manchester city heard about your, the Apple story, which I told uh, Dylan and they want you to come. And would you be interested in having a trial for their 2010 preseason this year? And I'm watching Argentina. So I don't even realize, but like Pablo Zabaleta, Carlos Tevez, like, right on the screen yeah and i'm what and i'm going that'd be amazing like manchester city premier league absolutely no brainer um it goes okay i'm I'm gonna call him back and we'll figure it out so i hang up and i sit there and it's busy like we're at a pub watching a game and finally somebody goes who was that i was like oh it was my dad oh cool tell your dad i say hi okay and it starts to hit me i'm watching the game it starts to hit me like oh shit I'm going to be playing, like, I'm having a Guinness. It's 5 a.m. Like, I'm having a Guinness. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm gonna, in two months, I'm going to be at training with two of the guys on the screen playing in the World Cup. So I was like, nope, no thanks. Water. Um, and then I told him <laughs> what happened, and it was just, it was madness from there on out. And I picked up a personal trainer who was a Mexican national team player back in the day, uh, started training really, really hard, and ended up going to Man City in 2010 um for preseason i mean Uh, unreal how this comes about um if you wouldn't mind sharing with people this apple story because it's i think it's a a really interesting part of how this hall falls into place so the apple story is i mean pretty much at south end after in between trainings you know you're at the training ground you're either getting a workout in or you just finished a weight room workout and they're handing out candy they're just handing out candy. And I don't, I didn't do sugar. I was raised no sugar, no dairy. I didn't do red meat. You know, I maybe would have turkey for Thanksgiving, but it was very lean, um, veggie focused, whole grain, kind of the trendy way to eat now I've been eating my whole life. And so I said, I don't really want any um, candy. Do you have an apple? And they didn't have apples, which was crazy. So there was a grocery store. So I just left, walked to the grocery store and bought a bag of apples and everyone started I'll have an apple and that sound looks kind of good. So we started eating apples and 
candy disappeared and Apple started and we kind of changed this mentality and it brought the team together of like, you know, Hey, let's kind of take it seriously and train. And uh, anyway, Man City wanted to change their mentality from at football clubs back then, especially, and it depends on where you are is if you play right back and there's two other right backs, they don't really, it's not like right backs union where they're like, Mm. yeah, man, you start one game. I'll start one game. No, I want to be the star. I want to be the first guy on the team sheet. I don't want, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure you don't take my spot. And they wanted to change that mentality in England and create a cohesive unit, which you see a lot with Man City, the rotation they have, um, especially Liverpool. I mean, their their team and club structure is so strong. Um, and so you see that now. And so they wanted to bring me in and, hey, this Apple story, man, if you can do one of those for us, it might change something. I, I guess that was their philosophy. And so they uh, they brought me in and I got to start training. So what was that? What was that training like? Were you training with first team guys? And and I mean, that that is another level. I mean, it was, was one yeah. level from Montana to Gillingham and Southend, but to Man City is another planet in itself. Well, like, yeah, so I was in the elite development squad, uh, which trains the reserves. That's what they just that's what they call their reserve team. And so we trained on the same we sit, trained at the same training ground right next to each other. And there'd be crossover. Like we'd play a, we'd have a training match and they'd bring some of the 23s over the EDS squad to train the first team. And, you know, the first team strikers would be going and getting a finishing activity. Uh, but I'd be with the backups and we'd be training and doing finishing. Uh, so it was very crossover. It was very run like one program, which is how I run my program at high school. So we don't have a junior varsity and a varsity. I killed that language because I think it's dumb. So we have a first team and we have our reserves and we train as one program. So we've trained with 35 players. Interesting. Um, and everyone, so everyone's part of the same team. So a reserve player, you can play with for the first team on the weekend if you want, if you earn it in training, just like at the top level. And so it creates more inclusion. Uh, so yeah, we went out. I remember the first time I, I showed up and I had new trainers. I had new gear, like just a whole package of Umbro Nike gear because Nike owns Umbro. So I had a whole package in my locker with the EDS squad. And, but in that elite development squad, you had Adam Clayton, used to play in Middlesbrough. You had Kieran Trippia. You had Dedrick Boyata. Uh, you had John Guidetti. Uh, you, had, you have got Ben Mee. You have guys that are playing at the top level for a long time now. Uh, and they were just, you know, they were just in that team. So it was like, yeah, we were the young bucks. But looking back, there's some guys that could really move it. Those are wow. big names, big names on this. On a lot <laughs> yeah. of fantasy players nah. that we play with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, we would walk out like, so when we go out to training, you're, you know, you go to the boot room right before you go out and you know, I'm sitting next to Gareth Barry or James Milner or, you know, Alexander Kolarov or Jekko Balotelli and, you know, Roberto Mancini was the manager. So you're still Pablo Zabaleta. All those guys are still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just not interacting with them on this quite the same environment yeah. and level. But did any of them ever come put their arm around you? I hear stories about this sometimes, but maybe they did that if you were coming into the first team a little bit more to do regular training. Mm-hmm. But did, did anyone kind of strike you as a, as, as a, you know, as a nice guy or as a leader that would, would have that effect? Um, I mean, James Milner was a top guy. Joe Hart was top notch. Um, Patrick Vieira was there. And he was at the end of his career, yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. you could, he just oozed quality and he was just made you f- feel welcome. Micah Richards, same way, just, you know, you're part of the team. So he just treated you, uh, just treated you the same way. Uh, but Ben Mee was a really good guy. Ben Mee was top notch. 
Uh, and there's another guy, Greg Cunningham, who didn't really have an incredibly amazing career after that, but Greg Cunningham was a top, 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 top guy uh, as well. So, I mean, I never felt out of place I and mean, even the management and I forget who, which coach it was, but this is where I was first told, like he pulled me out of training. We're doing like a training game. It's like six v six pulled me out of training. And he goes, stop fucking giving the ball away. So look, technically you're good enough to be here. Physically, you, you have all the components. You're smart you work hard. You're coachable, but your teammates don't pass you the fucking ball. Cause every time you get it, you gave it away. Every time you got the ball right now, you gave the ball away. And I started thinking, and now he's got his arm around me, like kind of firm, like not a chokehold, but like, let me know. And I start thinking about it. I'm like, holy shit. I really did give the ball away every single time I got it. Like every single time. And it might've been like, I played a, a ball over the top to a guy that made the run and I just didn't hit a good enough ball, but that's a giveaway. Like, I don't mm -hmm. give a shit how almost it was. It's not horseshoes or hand grenades. You're playing footy. And if he doesn't bring the ball down and score, nobody gives a shit. So it really hit me, but what hit me there, and it goes back to the business side of things is he is laying into me, but what did he say? I'm technically good enough. I'm coachable. I'm physically talented enough to be there. I just need to stop giving the ball away. Okay. I can do that. Uh, and so I, you know, I continued and, and I improved and uh, that was the big arm around the shoulder moment uh, at Man City uh, that and Ben Mees, you know, he told the head of player carries like, dude, Roland can really play. Like we thought he might just be coming in American kid. Nobody's ever heard of him. Like, what are you doing here? But you know, he, he can, he can really play. Like he actually can play, which was huge. So yeah. Incredible. And so and Ben, me, if you watch this, give me yeah. a call. Yeah. Ben, me, <laughs> give us a call. get the, get the Burnley deal with the, with legends. Yeah, exactly. Get Sean Dyche's face on the shin guards. Oh, surely man, win dude. every tackle. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, they they the Burnley players need our shin guards the way they tackle the football. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then and then from Man City, uh, it, it came to an end. And where did you wind up from there? So Man City, well, Man City came to an end. Pretty much, it came to that gray area. They didn't know what to do with me. They couldn't sign me to a younger team, a younger schoolboy contract. They couldn't sign me to a pro contract, which is now I'm 20. They have to. So they tried to send me to Serie B. They tried to send me to Verona. And this is in 2010, Italy had the nightmare World Cup. They had no great players, no continuity. They, you know, so they say, hey, we need to develop our Italian kids. We can't just allow a lot of Americans and other players to come in and play as freely. And so they changed their rules, which took that opportunity away from me. So eventually came to Belgium uh, and I went over to Belgium um, and had a tryout with Lirsa, who was just a kind of like a recently purchased team by a very wealthy guy that just moved up into the Jupiler first team at the time. Uh, they had uh, uh, Kawash, the goalkeeper Kawashima, the Japanese national team goalkeeper played for them. Uh, so they had some guys that were, you know, lower level, lower tier national team players, but they had a good, good crew and had a tryout there and then went to against uh, Club Bruges and eventually uh, settled on uh, Racing Ghent, which is in the fourth tier of the Belgium um, league. And it was pretty much like, hey, sign a pro contract here and pretty much just get time playing. Like, just play and create a resume of, hey, I've played professionally. And if I stayed in Belgium for long enough, I'd have the ability to sign a professional contract in any division. And so that's the, 
that's the process that happens. And that the Belgian thing is a very sad, sad. I had an agent, my buddy from the Playboy Mansion moved over and became my manager. So I didn't have to talk to my agent, quit his job at the Playboy Mansion, moved over. Um, and I met uh, the father of a friend of mine, a Belgian girl that I knew in LA, Julie Vandenbosch. I met her dad um, and some bad stuff happened and he tried to become my agent and my agent disappeared. Um, and then fallout between me and him and uh, Julie's dad happened. And uh, I, I ended up going back after I signed my professional contract to finalize my visa. And the Belgium consulate pretty much told me that I already had one and they wouldn't give me another one um, because I didn't, they didn't want me to take the spot of any Belgian players. And the only thing I can think of is pretty much what happened is somebody called somebody and said, Hey, don't approve this visa. We don't want them to come back and play. Uh, it's the only thing that we can figure out why it wouldn't have happened. Cause I was already there. I had a contract. I had a reason to go back. I had a job. Uh, there was nothing that they should, you know, I had, I, I mean, I had the, the director of football, I had the president from the club all saying, yeah, no, like validating everything. It's not fair. He's coming over here. Um, they said, no, we, uh, we can't approve this because you'll take a job away from a Belgian. Uh, it's the fourth Unreal. division in Belgium. It's Unreal. like, what are you doing? Uh, so anyway, that happened. And I came back and had a trial at uh, Toronto FC. Um, and it was just another no with a positive. It's that, that mentality of like, no, we're not going to sign you because the manager at the time, Ryan Nielsen, only wanted to sign to establish top-level players, Josie Altstor, Michael Bradley, Sean Wright Phillips, who I knew from Man City, well, acquaintance of. Um, they, that's who he wanted to sign. He wanted to sign those types of players. So he said, you're good enough. You're the best player on the field today, and you're definitely good enough to be here, but he's not going to want to sign you. I mean, I'm going to tell him we should, but he's not going to want to sign you. And sure enough, didn't get a contract. And so came back. Uh, this is about 2012. Came back to LA, was still playing semi-pro. I was asked actually by the UCLA coach at the time where I had played college. And I'm like, oh, I haven't. He goes, well, if you want, you could definitely play for us. <laughs> and then I went back and played uh, in Montana for a semi-pro team. We played in Canada and played in Vegas and Seattle and played in some tournaments. Um, and met Sean started going down that route, met my now current wife, mother of my kids, uh, started coaching and really found out that I was, I was born to be a soccer coach. I was born to teach the game as much as I loved playing. And I was a very good player. All of those experiences playing at the top level, playing with players that have played and won the world cup and the premier league. And it's being told no and told yes. And the environment, the mentality of young kids, all of that came together. And it was like, I was born to be a coach. Um, and I was born to coach women. So that's, you know, you found, I found my path. Yeah. It's quite crazy that it settles there. And it, it's quite crazy what happened along the way, how much outside of the pitch. I think that was a common theme throughout your story was you just wanted to play and there was a love for the game and love for learning and you were learning on the fly. But at the end of the day, it was all of these things that were a bit out of your control. Was it hard mm -hmm. to come to terms with a lot of these things that were happening to you throughout the journey? Yeah, I was depressed for years. For years after that, I think that's why the business, you know, our business ventures struggled. And 
uh, you know, I took my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, like to say, what are you doing? Like, what the fuck are you doing? And I, I like had to come to terms like, I'm just depressed. I had my whole life's like, I'm going to make it like I'm going to play. And if I said I wasn't going to anymore, I just felt like a failure. Like I gave up. Like I didn't do it because like, I'd never failed. Every time I tried out for a team, I made it. Went to Man City. I didn't necessarily fail. I like, no, you're good enough. We just need to send you here. There was like a deflection. Like, no, you can do it. You just got to do this. No, you can do it. You just got to do it. Like I always was continuing. And it was this me of going, yes, I'm good enough, but I just don't want to keep grinding. I didn't, I didn't want to keep grinding. I wanted to get after um, being, you know, motivational speaker. I, I wanted to, and I just had, didn't have the guts to, in my brain, give up, mm. quit. That's what it felt like. Like, did you really fail? You played at Man City. You held your own at the top level with the best players. Like, what well, is that really failing? Um, you know, and I have I, to this day, one of my best friends, Damian Blackburn, uh, played for the Columbus Crew. He, we're both, we coached together. And um, he's like, dude, you're a better player than I was. I mean, and he grew up in Dayton, Ohio. He was part of the youth national team setup and he won a national championship as a club player. Like, he was, that's like the main trajectory. He's like, you're better than I was but you didn't have the mentality that you needed to have. And it's because of the environment you grew up in. And so now he lives here and we're trying to change that environment in Montana. We're trying to create mm. some players that can really uh, go out and push the envelope and challenge kids. So, yeah, but it was brutal. I mean, it was, it was a really hard segue of giving up, mm. so to speak. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. Go ahead, Sean. Sorry. Yeah. I want to come back to, to, uh, to your coaching, um, you mentioned before that you don't have a varsity and JV. You have a first and a reserve team. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that brilliant, first off, to <laughs> have it set up like this because that gives the chance for a younger player to play on the better team, the varsity team. Um, yeah. But it's not; it's just not set up like that. And often, um, yeah, those players don't get a chance because they're not training with the other players to kind of – you can see them together who's the better player. It's very easy to see when they're on different teams and different training environments. It's impossible to see. Yeah. It's, it's fine. It took me, I've been coaching this team, this program for seven years. It took me until two years ago to do that. So it wasn't like I just walked in and went, Oh, Oh. I know what to do. Um, But it came down to like, girl, I would lose players because they made JV or they'd just be destroyed because they made junior varsity. And it was really, it really the first iteration of it, I started thinking about like, man, how can I get rid of this stigma and stipulation of if you don't make varsity, you suck, you don't want to play, it's you failed, right? Mm-hmm. And this comes back from all of my experiences and journey. It's like, no, you're, you're a part of our team and our program. I value you if you're the 30th player or you're the first player. Like, I, I value you. We need you to be able to run training games with, to develop and push. And, you know, we do have a disparity of players and so it becomes as a coach it is not easy and you have to be good at using your coaching staff to run a training session with 35 players and make sure every player in that session is either challenged feels valued feels a part of the system and the team um and it's a skill set that not many people can do and so it's hard but when you take that wording away and it's first team in reserve you now have this environment where I'm a part, like if I'm part of the reserve team and the first team wins the state's quarterfinal, they won it because you prepared them to play against that opponent. Yeah. Our opponent plays in a low block four, three, three, which nobody does because the coaching is not good enough, but 
if they sit in and they try and counter us because they don't have the players, well, my reserve team, that's how they play in training. That's how they're preparing us to play that opponent. That's harder. That's almost harder than playing the way you want to play. And it develops and then you get to be pushed. And we've got players that go back and forth and train with us and start first team games, but they're a reserve player. Um, and so it just creates value, generates value, creates uh, for the player that they feel valued in a system that normally they're JV and the, they would never see the varsity coach because he's training the varsity. Mm-hmm. They just get the leftovers. Um, and that's not how we work. They get, uh, they get the best coaching from the first team staff, from the program staff. And uh, it's been successful um, so far. So, yeah, but it, that comes from my experience. If, that, yeah. if I didn't experience, right. experience what I did, I wouldn't have the guts to do that. And, you know, we do a lot of progressive things in our program. Like uh, I do, I do, I track possession stats. Um, so we do all of the deep dive statistics, passes completed, uh, possession uh, length, giveaways, uh, how many successful passes, longest pass string in turn before building up to a goal, uh, all of those things. And then now this year, we actually just uh, collaborated with Stat Sports. And so now we're going to track all of our physical data as well. So all of our ah, players cool. will be tracked. Uh, and then we do game film analysis. And so it's pretty deep dive. You won't find a high school program that's run the way my team no. is. But, no, it doesn't sound uh, like it at all. Yeah, I love it. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, this just is a testament to your journey and how you kind of said a few times, like, is it really failure? Because all of these things that you learned on this journey brought, I mean, you bring it back to you to the U.S. and you instill all of these values, all of these things to run a program a bit professionally to really test players, to give them a chance, whether they're the first or they're the 30th. So what are some of the differences you see or had seen in England um, that you really wanted to bring back into American soccer culture uh, besides the, you know, the statistic based? Um, yeah. So it's the statistics. It's um, as a coach, I like, I, and especially I, I love coaching the female psyche and the, the way I describe it to people is with men's, with men's players and women's players, I'd rather cultivate a player's ego then have to destroy someone's to get them to be a part of a team. I'd rather cultivate a female's mentality to go be a goal scorer, to be relied upon as our single pivot, to be the leader of our back three, than to have to tell a guy like, hey, stop dribbling the ball like, and have to tear someone down. I'd rather build someone up. Um, and I think especially Montana in our small microcosm of the US, but it's still the same way. And we're seeing it more and more is that and I believe this to this day that the women's side of the game is not coached the same way as the men's, even at the top, even at the national team. And I'm like, I'm friends with Hope Solo. I've talked to Carly Lloyd. I've sat down with Landon Donna. Like I know like the when they're not coached the same way. We've got talented female players and yet our national team, as good as they are, they don't play the same way even our men's team does. And they're like, they, there's a different, they can too this is what I love about this, about soccer is like you can watch a national team, you can watch women play and they can play the exact same way, but they're not challenged to do that. Uh, and that's kind of what I brought in is that you're going to be treated the way I'd want to be treated when I was growing up playing. So like we, my team, and this is before the main segue happened. We play a three, four, two, one, we're a three, four, one, two. Uh, we live in the half space. We don't have um, want take on players in our, in our wing players. So we didn't want to play in a four, three, three. 
So we play with wingbacks. Um, uh, we, I had a very, very special talented player that was our six. And so she played like, we only use the number system. We divide our field with paint into uh, grids. So we play half space, wide space, central space. And then we do um, the third. So I think it's broken into 15 different zones. And then we break down the 18 yard box into I think 12 different zones uh, right now or 10 different zones, goal scoring zones and areas of action. Um, and so these are the things that we train. So like our players, they know that if they receive the ball in the defensive third in the half space, what the option, what the optimal pass is out of that deep line midfield roller that, you know, our dueling eight or however we wanted to play. Um, and before that, we played Pep Guardiola's inverted, inverted outside backs with dueling eights, like a Kevin De Bruyne and a David Silva uh, with wide wing players. Uh, so they, and it sucks, like I've never, I've never won a state championship. And so you, my, the boys team on the other side of me, who the coaches I love, top-notch dude, but doesn't coach them um has won four titles in a row and hasn't lost a game in those four years but they have really good players but if you put my players into a conversation with them the tactical knowledge and game knowledge they have is immense and so for us that level when they leave my program and they want to play in college or they want to continue playing the coach that they that inherits my player is going to get a player that is very tactically aware and might you might have to ask them to play a different role play at a different system but when you say hey can you play in between the lines off the back shoulder of their you know midfield line uh receive the ball in the half space because we want to attack you know whatever area my player will go you got it coach no problem uh, and that's you know that's where i live and that's where the coaching step, goes. step up your game people this is this yeah. is there's levels to this shit <laughs> this yeah is, we'll try. Is, we're still learning of course yeah this this is next level uh high school coaching yeah, yeah the success will come just takes time, I mm -hmm. guess. Yeah, I mean, we. I actually did some math and broke down our our coaching records, and I think he's lost like six games less than me in that same time period since we we got the jobs at the exact same time seven years ago. Um, and so the consistency in our in the program has been uh, pretty cool. But you know, I produced play like okay. I had a player go to Eastern Washington on a full D one scholarship uh, out of our program, talented number ten. So. Yeah, it's uh, but that's what I, you know, so my experiences, like I was born to coach like those, the players that are in my program, like they and I, players and this is the here's the crazy thing. I've got players that play center back in a back three for our reserve team. Maddie Young has never played soccer before. She's coached the exact same way. I don't change it because she technically make, can't execute the correct action. Like she played in reserve game, turned around and tried to play our goalkeeper's feet and hit it short and conceded a goal and was so depressed because I talk about, don't give it away, keep the ball. I said, Maddie, what'd you do wrong? Uh, I gave it away. Okay, why? Was it the right action? Did you make the right decision to solve the problem with the pressure that was created? Yeah. So what happened? Well, I just hit the pass short. Okay, why? When I was off balance, I didn't step in and use this technique. Okay, so do it next time, fix it. Turned around, tried to do the same thing, gave it away again, they scored it again. Same conversation. And from that moment on, she was confident, never gave the ball away again, played great. But I don't change just because they can't do it. You help them grow. Mm. And it's a little, you know, at the professional level, it'd be a little different because I'm being paid to win games and I might be. But developing players, developing a style and a brand and philosophy, she gets coached the same way, no matter if you're a Division One 
player coming out of our program, best goal scorer ever, or you're new to the game. Love that. All right, well, we want to jump into our fast feet round, a little game we play at the end. Uh, just a few quick fire questions. Um, we'll start off with your favorite moment in your career, uh, business-wise and footballing-wise. Um, favorite moment of career business-wise, probably we got to meet, sit down with Landon Donovan um, and got to pitch him our idea and, and chat with him multiple times. Uh, you know, kind of meeting a legend of the game is pretty special. So that's a, that was a big favorite moment business-wise. Um, favorite moment as a player, probably validation of Man City. You know, Ben Me, that coach, like saying, hey, you're good enough to be here, but don't give the ball away. Or, and like, hey, he can really play. Uh, you know, I came from Big Fork, Big Fork High School and some really garbage coaching. And so to be able to kind of bootstrap your way to that moment is pretty, pretty special and something I hold on to that, yeah, I didn't sign a professional contract, but I can play at that level and I know I can, and I know I could have, and uh, that's all that matters. What about most difficult moment? Mm, most difficult moment. Well, okay. So the hardest thing I ever experienced is when I went to Belgium from Man City the first time I was by myself. So I was uh, 20, 19, 20. And uh, I got off the train on the channel, got off the train in the train station in Belgium uh, and ended up getting mugged and lost Shit. all of my, I got, I had all my, my clothes, but I lost my, I had like, I had some, um, like jewelry that I had bought some watches, some things like that. I'd got like all of my possessions, uh, that I had, I had actually just taken my passport, my, which my wallet and all of my cash that I had on me and put it in my jacket pocket. Cause I've been traveling so long. I'm like, I need to keep this on me. Um, and then right after that, I got mugged and in the middle of the train station, and all that was taken away. Um, still had my phone, uh, but that was a pretty traumatic experience. Damn. Imagine. Um, <laughs> best advice you ever received? Oh, man. Whew. Best advice don't give the ball away. Don't stuck, give the ball It's stuck away. with you. It's yeah. a recurring thing. Dude, I'll tell you that. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's literally like, the amount of careless shit I see players do and they kind of go, Oh man, sorry. I'm like, why the fuck did you just try and make that pass? Don't give the ball away. That was the dumbest. Like why, why? And they can't <laughs> tell you. And it's just hold yourself to a standard. Don't give the fucking ball away. Yeah. Good God. Giving, giving's a gift here. Have this. That's a gift. Will you turn the ball over to the opponent in a game? Absolutely. You do a lot, but you look at the top level, you know, like I know stats because I'm a Tottenham fan, like Hoiberg in one game, like 90% passing accuracy in a game at the top level. So if you're in training and you give it away 50% of the time, what the fuck are you doing? Better be working on the hardest shit ever. Anyway, don't give the ball away. Big one. <laughs> that, stuck, that stuck with you. How about uh, best, play, best play you ever played with or against? Ooh. Oh, man, there's a lot. I mean, because I've played, like, I, so I didn't really, like, play against, like, Patrick Vieira or Tevez. I didn't play against them. I'd say the, the toughest player I ever played against, like, straight ahead, would either be um, Dedrick Boyata, Ben Mee, Kieran Trippia, or Micah Richards mm -hmm. in a back line, trying to take those guys on 1v1. I, I mean, imagine, Micah yeah. Richards was a fucking yeah, best. He was beast. a specimen. You should, you should. Dude, you should you should see him like without his clothes on. 
like just muscle everywhere. Like he had no ankles. It was just like, you won, dude, you, you're, you're fit. Like you're the, you're a mountain. <laughs> and he was fast and strong and agile. Oh yeah. What a play. It was, it was dumb. It was just dumb. So, I mean, played against probably them. The best player I've ever played with um, Yaya Torre or Patrick Vieira, like watching them in the center of the field was like, they're at a kickabout in the park. Oh, like guess. Patrick Vieira, Patrick Vieira, because we had Craig Bellamy, who is a nutcase. Nutcase, top dude, yeah. Top dude. But Such just a cool like guy to watch, intense. though. Yeah. Oh, un- an unbelievable player and mm. a really great guy, but on a soccer field, like from zero to a thousand. Yeah. 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 Um, and then Nigel De Young, and everyone knows, like, he'd, he'd kill you, if, I'm sure, if he had the chance and just <laughs> kick some dude in the chest in a World Cup or a European Championship. But Legend. Patrick Patrick Vieira would just play a ball. Like, he'd be on De Young's team and just play a ball and play him into a 50-50 challenge with Craig Bellamy and then just, like, start giggling and laughing because he knew they'd just clatter each other. <laughs> That's hilarious. Like, he was just like, – That's hilarious. He was living the, he was living the dream. But oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, Torrey and Patrick Vieira, unreal. Classic. Wow favorite book uh two of them one of them is called shadow of the wind by carlos ruiz zafone uh it's an incredible story um and the other one is the art of war for soccer um which is a translation i forget i used to have it in my bag i forget who wrote it um but it's a soccer coach and he took the sun tzu's art of war and yeah. translated it in relation to um, the game as a coach, how wow. to manage a team. Wow. So take think of the think of a general of an army, um, and translate that to a coach of a team, uh, and he translated it into uh, a book. That's actually from my buddy Daniel Blackburn. He gave showed it to me, and I was like, dude, I have to buy this book. So interesting. So I make, wow, I'm, I'm I'm gonna I make buy, my uh... players read it. I make my players read it on the bus when we go. Crazy. To games, I didn't so know I about to read sections of it. By yeah, Liam Shannon, I believe it is. Yeah, there you go. Sun Tzu yeah, Soccer, nice. the Art of War in Soccer Language. Hell yeah. I'm adding that to the list 100%. It's a, huh. It's not really a book you read, really. It's like he takes uh, like philosophies and, and segments from it. So you're not like you read oh, segments yeah, yeah. of it. You read, mm-hmm, and, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a great book. Like just sit and read on the, way to the, on the way to a game or a match or, you know, together and break down different. It's just, Love you that. know, if you're a soccer nerd like I am, you'll dive yep. deep. Yep. Thank you for that. Um, any quotes that you live by? I've got a thousand of them. Um, I actually Besides, don't give the ball away. Don't give the ball away is not a quote uh, <laughs> that I use. It's a mantra. Um, the big one, Latin, uh, Latin frayed ad astra per aspera, which is a rough road leads to the stars, um, is a big one that I've had since I was a little, probably 18 years old. Um, some of that I use now as a coach, uh, you have to fail forward. So I encourage my players to fail daily. If you're not failing and making mistakes, you're not improving. Uh, so it's a dichotomy of like, don't give the ball away, but you have to mess up. Yeah. They're like, what, what do you mean? I don't understand. Uh, but when You'll you learn. figure it out, yeah. it's yeah, when you figure it out. Uh, so that one, and then be comfortable being uncomfortable, constantly being, put yourself in situations that you don't feel comfortable in. Um, nothing, this is a big one. Nothing is good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Love mm. that. Love that. So Anything mm. you decide can be good or bad. Nothing is good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. Um, and then the last one, people come into your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. Yeah, I love so that some, one too. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes we dive in and we're like, 
get so distraught because a best friend that you thought you had or you know is gone or you break up with a girlfriend or and it's like it's like no that's a season that's or that's a portion they taught you for a reason they taught you something or a season of your life but you're a different person now or you have friends that you know like maybe you guys are friends forever but maybe you guys aren't friends in two years it's like hey we built this podcast and <laughs> we made all these great things happen and and that's a it's a big one we had um the reason that's really big is we had four players, soccer players commit suicide in our Valley uh, this oh year. Uh, a couple players I coached um, players of my team and it was really rough for our girls program. And uh, to kind of share that with them, like their, their lives were cut short and, but you know, they, they were in your life for a reason or they're in your life for a season of, and appreciate that. Enjoy the moments you had with them. Right. Thinking nothing is good nor bad thinking makes it so. You know, it's a bad thing to happen, but you can think of it in bad way and make it depressed, or you can think of it in a good way. Enjoy the season of the life that you've enjoyed with them and cherish that dearly and move on and grow from it. Well said. Well yeah. said. Um, before we go, you know, we've touched a lot about the past and, and everything, but we want to know what does the future look like for Legends? What does the future look like for Roland? And where can everyone find you guys? Um, we're going to keep growing. We're going to pioneer change in the game, innovation, uh, you know, continually progress sustainability in, in sport and grow the game in the U S we want to create a culture that you guys are unbelievably getting to experience in Germany of, you know, everyone and their grandmother loves the game and, uh, because of what it can teach you. So we cultivate the game in the U S and we've got big things coming, uh, on the horizon to connect that, um, for me, continue growing a brand connecting people, uh, motivating people, and continue to be a better coach. Um, I don't think I'll always be coaching high school soccer the rest of my life. I want to coach at the top level, especially on the women's side, so I'll continue pushing that. Um, and go check us out, legendsoccer.com. Uh, go check out our website, uh, at Legend Soccer Co., Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, support us, like us, share us, and get some shin guards, man. Make a change. Yeah, make a change. Love, Love that. that. Growth mindset. Thank you so much for coming on, Roland. Amazing conversation. And yeah, I can't wait to see what the future holds. My pleasure, boys. Pleasure chatting with you. Yes. Thank you, Roland. Footwork is sponsored by ourselves and great companies such as Kong Fitness. But we love to partner with new brands that make their own paths. So get in touch if you must. Footwork.club. The official footwork website is now live. So make sure you go join the club and check out all the new content and all the new features. Find us on YouTube at Footwork Podcast. You better like and subscribe while you're there. If not, I don't know what to tell you. Find us on Instagram at Footwork underscore podcast. Great time there. And Twitter at Footwork Podcast. TikTok at Footwork Podcast, where we like to post dance videos those are great but more importantly amazing content for any dream chasers out there plug plug pass tell your friends your enemies your mother your brother your sister your pastor it doesn't matter who tell the mailman your dog anybody that can listen like subscribe review because all of that helps while you're there we'll take whatever we can get to join the club join the club he messed yeah. me up i mean he can just he can just mash it together so it's fine <laughs>